This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Pray that you would cause your word to come alive in us. Like, like being deep underwater, we live in sin. And the Holy Spirit, as we just sang, you are are like a respirator that breathes life into us, the only life we have. So, Father, we pray again, as we just sang, that you would breathe life into us through your word, that you would give us a passion for your purity and for your holiness, and ultimately, Lord, that would be returned to you in worship. Father, we know all of this is ours only through Jesus Christ, so it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We are going to be in Philemon this morning, if you want to start heading there in your Bibles, and please don't be afraid to use your concordance. It's toward the end of your Bible. Philemon comes right before Hebrews and right after 2 Timothy and Titus, if you can find one of those. If you missed last week, uh, we wrapped up Jeremiah, and I have to admit, I have voiced this to some of you, but... That was one of the hardest books I have ever preached through, and I hate saying this about the Word of God, but I'm kind of glad we're done with that one. (laughs) Which means, as I said a couple weeks ago, that we're going to move into a short series going through several small books of the Bible, and this will carry us through Easter, books like Philemon, Jude, Obadiah, Haggai, books that I'll preach through in one Sunday. And Philemon is one of the shortest of those books. And by short, I mean short. It's only 25 verses. I mean, like Paul has single sentences in other books that are almost as long as this whole book. So let's read through the whole letter. Again, it's only 25 verses, and then we'll come back around and work our way through it. Philemon, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. 
for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, be with your spirit. So let me give you a little background so you know what's going on here. If you'll look back at the beginning, verse 1 tells us that Paul is in prison. And as far as we can tell, this is one of three letters that he wrote from prison. Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, this letter. So what can we know about Philemon? Well, it appears that Philemon was saved several years ago when Paul was in Ephesus. But he actually lives and is a member of the church in Colossae, which was a few miles inland from Ephesus. But he's not just a member. Verse 2 tells us that Philemon was a wealthy man. In fact, his home was large enough to house the church in Colossae. They didn't have church buildings back then. They met in homes. And Philemon's home was big enough for the church in Colossae. However, not only was he wealthy enough to have a large home, but the purpose of this letter tells us that he was wealthy enough to own slaves. Now, before we move on, I want to just say a quick word about slavery in Roman times because it was slightly different than what we think of slavery. You see, when we think of slavery, we think of, of racism, of uh, permanent bondage. And, and even though we can't rule that out from any era in history, uh, for the most part, Roman slavery was slightly different than that. Um, although the masters back then did technically own their slaves, it wasn't because they thought they were inhuman or inferior people. For Romans, slavery was primarily a financial issue. Now, think of it this way. We practically live our entire lives on credit. For most of us, our homes, our vehicles, even most of the money we spend during the day is not based on what we have, but based on what we will have in the future. The Roman culture wasn't like that. But that doesn't mean that people still didn't go into debt. So there were many people who couldn't afford to live on what they made. So if you were in debt and couldn't pay your bill, you belonged to your debtor until you could pay it off. And any slave in the Roman culture could buy their own freedom. Now, I'm going to leave it at that, but I do want to acknowledge that that was a, a gross generalization of slavery in their time. Um, certainly there were masters who were mean and cruel and unfair, just like there were masters who were generous and kind and decent. But the bottom line is slavery was more like indentured servitude than it was racial bondage. But nevertheless, that brings us to the other main character of this story, whose name was Onesimus. 
Now, what we know about Onesimus from this letter is that he was a slave of Philemon. But at some point in the past, he had run away. And verse 18 hints that he had also probably stolen something from Philemon when he left. But, to his surprise, I'm sure, he wound up in Rome where he ran into Paul. That's the background of the characters in this letter. And here's what I want you to think about. What happens when you take a bunch of people, throw in a little bit of slavery, add a dash of thievery and a, and a, and a heavy helping of sin and mix it all together, what do you get? You get a mess. Like a casserole your mom would call leftover surprise. You get insult layered on top of injury with this kind of faint aftertaste of bitterness and animosity, the bottom line is you get a big mess, a bunch of wrecked relationships. That's where the letter to Philemon is coming from, broken relationships. And not just sort of, sort of mild broken relationships, relationships broken by theft and, and very, very concrete things. I wonder if you can relate to any of that. If you have any relationships that have been wrecked by insult or injury or offense. Maybe it's someone in this building. Can you think of someone in here who has hurt or insulted or offended you in some way? Or maybe it's someone in your family. There's someone in your family who has offended or insulted or damaged your relationship in some way. Or circle back and and ask those same questions in the opposite direction. Is there someone in this room or someone in your family who you have insulted or offended or hurt in some way? Because that's the point of Paul's letter to Philemon. It's about how the gospel puts relationships back together. That's what I want you to see this morning as we go through this letter. I want you to see the radical reconciling power of the gospel. The radical reconciling power of of the gospel. First, look at verses 4 through 7 again. And notice how it begins with the radical power of the gospel to reconcile people to God. That's where it begins. The radical power of the gospel to reconcile people to God. You see, verses 4 through 7 tells us that something radical has happened to Philemon. Philemon used to be like every other upper class Roman. Bent on power and wealth and prestige. But look what Paul says about him now. In in verses 4 through 5, Paul says that Philemon's love and faith, not only for God but for all the saints, has reached Paul's ears as far away as Rome. That's a changed man. In fact, Paul says in verse 6 that his prayer is that Philemon's impact would grow. Paul says that he, he prays that Philemon's testimony would be used to bring the full knowledge of all the good things in Jesus to more of those around him. Why? Because, Paul says in verse 7, the saints have been refreshed by Philemon. The way in which the radical power of the gospel has changed Philemon is refreshing to other believers around him. Because they can see that Philemon has been radically changed by the gospel. He no longer sees other people as tools to be used for his own gain, but himself as the instrument being wielded by God for others' gain. 
And why does Philemon feel this way? What has caused this huge change in his life? Again, Paul says it back in verse 5. Philemon has been so radically reconciled to God that now his faith and love toward the Lord Jesus is known all the way in Rome. That's the radical reconciling power of the gospel. It takes antagonists of God and makes them agents of God. It takes foes of God and turns them into friends of God. The radical reconciling power of the gospel takes haters of God and makes them lovers of God. How about you? Have you experienced that radical reconciling power of the gospel in your life? If you haven't, I pray you would. I pray you would see how you have ruined your relationship with your Creator and and need someone else to fix it for you. And I pray that you would believe that that someone else is Jesus Christ. Because believing that Jesus paid for your sin by His death on the cross is the only way to be reconciled to God. You cannot do it on your own. You are not good enough and you cannot be good enough. But Jesus was. And He offers to credit you His goodness for simply believing you need Him to. And I pray this for you because of what so many others in this room here can testify, how they have been refreshed. I know there are many in here who can relate to what Paul is saying about Philemon. You've been changed in a way you cannot explain. You have a love for God that is not your own. You have a love for others that is not your own. And you have this desire for others to know this love that you cannot control. It's like gospel acid eating its way out of your heart. As frightening as it is, as anxiety-causing as it is, you cannot contain it. Is that you this morning? Have you experienced this radical reconciling power of the gospel? Because if you have, here's where the letter to Philemon gets interesting. As Paul transitions to the main point of this letter, notice the first word he uses in verse 8. He says, accordingly, meaning according to what he just described about Philemon, according to the change he just described about Philemon, this is the connection that Paul is about to make. Listen closely. The radical power of the gospel to reconcile us to God is the same power that radically reconciles us to each other. The radical power of the gospel to reconcile us to God is the same power that radically reconciles us to each other. In fact, look how strongly Paul believes in this truth. He says first in verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Think about that. Paul is saying, as an apostle commissioned by Jesus Christ himself, in words inspired by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, that he has, has the authority, in fact, to command Philemon to do this if he wanted to. But he's not going to. Why? Because Paul goes on to explain that he trusts more in the radical reconciling power of the gospel than he does in his own authority. He could tell him to do this, but he knows the gospel is more effective than his words. 
Because apparently there has been a radical change in Onesimus as well, if we read behind the lines. You see, the reason Onesimus ran all the way to Rome was because he was a legitimate criminal. He was in big trouble. I mean, even if you don't fault him for running away from slavery, he still stole something from Philemon. Meaning, listen to this. Listen to what Onesimus could be facing by going back. In those times, according to Roman law, running away from your master and theft were both capital crimes. And if Onesimus wasn't executed, he, expect, he could expect to be branded on the forehead with an F for fugitivus, runaway, or a CF, which was cave furum, beware the thief, right on his forehead. In fact, one year before Paul wrote Philemon, just one year before this, a, a man named Padanius Secundus, another wealthy Roman, was killed by one of his 400 slaves. And, and the historian Tacitus tells us that during the ensuing trial, the prosecution argue, argued that all 400 other slaves should be executed, and they won. All 400 slaves were executed as a warning to others, meaning slavery was such an integral institution in the Roman economy uh, that there was no leniency for those like Onesimus who disrupted the status quo. But here's Onesimus, willing to go back, willing to face the music, Onesimus is no longer running. He's now repenting. He's no longer stealing. Paul says he's serving. He's no longer pilfering. No, now he's proclaiming the gospel with Paul. How could that be? What could cause someone to be willing to take such a huge risk? Well, just like Philemon, Onesimus has also been reconciled to God by the radical power of the gospel. It's changing people. Paul says he has now become Onesimus' father in the faith, meaning Paul is vouching that I have converted this man and there is evidence of this. And, and, and in fact, he does something really cool in verse 11. Look at verse 11 again. Paul says, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. You see, Onesimus' name means useful. So Paul's making this play on words, saying to Philemon that he who was useless to you is now actually able to live according to his name. Because the, the radical reconciling power of the gospel, because of that power, Onesimus is now ready to truly be Onesimus to you, Philemon. In fact, Paul says in verse 15, for this perhaps, for this change in, in Onesimus, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but now how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So Philemon isn't the only one who changed. And Paul is asking Philemon to reconcile with Onesimus because just like Philemon, Onesimus has now also been reconciled to God. But here is where we need to take a moment to let what Paul is saying sink in. Think about what this actually means if Philemon does accept Onesimus back. Think about Onesimus for a moment. 
There must have been a reason he ran away. So how's this going to work between him and Philemon? I mean, if Onesimus has truly repented, then I have to assume that he feels some sort of obligation to, to continue to work for Philemon. How's that going to work? What if Onesimus goes back to work for Philemon and Philemon asks him to do something he doesn't want to? Oh, see, Philemon, I knew it. You're just the same. Nothing's changed. You're still ordering me around like you used to. What are the other slaves going to think of, of Onesimus being treated differently? And think about Philemon for a moment. What are his fellow businessmen going to think of him if he just lets a runaway slave come back? Not to mention if he, if he lets him come back and be treated better than when he first ran away. What are the other slaves in the church of Colossae going to think about this? But more importantly, what about what Onesimus stole from Philemon? How are they supposed to handle that? That's a legitimate offense. That's, a, that's on record. That can be quantified. How are they supposed to handle that? Well, this is where Philemon starts to get a little sharp. Paul tells them how to handle that. And his solution should be jarring if you think about what it means to you and I. You see, Paul seems to think that the radical reconciling power of the gospel has already solved the debt that Onesimus owes Philemon. Look again at what Paul says to Philemon in verse 18. He says, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything... Charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, meaning I want you to see this is like a, a, a personal IOU. I will repay it. And he throws in this little thing to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. I love Paul. Here's his thought process. Philemon, you owe me your eternal soul. I'm the one who brought you to Christ. You will not spend eternity in hell because of my relationship with you. So if Onesimus owes you some money, if you need to be repaid for that, just put that on my tab. Brothers and sisters, don't read past what Paul just said too quickly. Let it sink in. For example, go back to those questions I asked you a few minutes ago about those people who have even legitimately insulted or offended or hurt you in some way. And I want you to ask and answer yourself this question. Can you completely overlook their offense because of the radical reconciling power of the gospel? Because that's what Paul is asking Philemon to do. You see, Paul thinks the reconciling power of the gospel trumps the conflict and the insult and the offense that we receive from each other. How's that? Why should I overlook how someone has treated me? Even, even for years, how someone has treated me. Well, this is how Paul sees it, okay? As at odds as we may feel with someone else, it was infinitely worse between us and God. Meaning, as greatly as someone has offended us, we offended God far worse. As greatly as someone has insulted us, we insulted God 
far worse. Yet for you and I, Jesus said, just put that on my tab. And, this is important, and he demanded nothing in return. Listen, he didn't set up a payment plan for us to make it up to him. He didn't even give us a list of things we did wrong so we wouldn't forget. And he certainly, listen, he certainly doesn't require us to prove just how sorry we are by not ever doing it again. No, he simply said, just put everything they owe on my tab. And his sacrifice, his forgiveness, his work was powerful enough to reconcile us with God. Therefore, Paul tells Philemon and us this morning, if the radical power of the gospel is enough to reconcile us with God, then it certainly should be enough to reconcile us with each other. But is it? Can you look at your brother or sister, your husband or your wife, or somebody you know, and say to them the same thing that Jesus has said to you? Just put that offense on my tab. I'll take it. And, and listen, and I don't require anything from you in return. Can you say that this morning? You know, Jesus talked a lot about abandoning our lives and our desires and our treasures to, to follow Him. He even called us to pick up our own cross to follow Him. So the question I have for you this morning is, are you, a willing, are you willing to abandon your hurt to follow Christ? Are you willing to abandon the insults you've received to follow Christ? Are you willing to simply absorb another's sin against you in order to follow in the footsteps of Christ? How can I ask you to do that? Well, it's because, listen, Christ already absorbed their sin on the cross. Christ absorbed the hurt and the insult. Each and every one of us have shown not only God, but each other when He went to the cross to pay for it. Which means, the fact of the matter is, listen, if we can't do this, we're saying that their offense against us was greater than their offense against God. If the radical power of the gospel isn't enough for us to reconcile with each other, then effectively we're saying, God, I know Jesus' sacrifice was enough for you to forgive them, but you got to hear what they did to me. In other words, if the radical power of the gospel is enough for God to forgive those who have insulted us, then shouldn't it be enough for us to forgive them as well? Let me say that differently. Why do we feel like we need something more in return when we're offended by someone, when Jesus' sacrifice was enough for God? Now, at this point, I know there certainly must be a million questions running around in your mind. Like maybe you're thinking something like, I hear what you're saying, Grant, but they keep doing it. 
They keep hurting. They keep insulting me. It's like they don't even know or they're not sorry. They keep doing it. Do you not keep sinning against God? Then why do you need more than Jesus' sacrifice for someone's continual sin against you when His sacrifice is enough for your continual sin against God? Or maybe you're thinking something like, but why don't they have to do anything? Like, why do I just have to eat it? Well, I, I actually find it interesting that Paul doesn't address this in this passage. He doesn't go into any of the what-ifs or what-about-whens. I mean, you got to know this, review, this, this reunion was anything but clean. It just doesn't work like that. So why didn't Paul address that? Well, I think it's for two reasons. First, I think Paul trusts the Holy Spirit to handle those issues, to, to grow Philemon and Onesimus in the ways that need, they need to be grown in order for this conflict to get worked out. And second, I think Paul is confident with that in, in coordination with what the rest of the Bible has to say about that. Let me tell you what I mean. You see, just because we forgive and reconcile with someone, that doesn't mean we don't do things like speak the truth in love and preach the word uh, to admonish and to, to teach and to reprove and to rebuke all things that are, that are in Christ or, or to spur one another on to good, good works. No, it doesn't mean that we don't stop doing that. No, the Bible has plenty to say about that process of growing each other in Christ. The problem is this. Listen, we don't do that. No, when someone offends us, when we are insulted, when we feel slighted or hurt by someone else, we just cut off our relationship and hold it against them as long as we can remember the problem. We stop talking to them, we stop fellowshipping with them, and in many cases, we even stop loving them. That's what this letter says has to get fixed first. Us, not them. Yet our mindset says, I'll fix things when they change. We have to forgive and reconcile with them in our hearts before we think about what needs to be done with them. Listen, we need to accept that the radical power of the gospel, listen, is enough for us to forgive them today before we worry about how they'll offend us tomorrow. In other words, the point of this letter is not that we don't continue to help our brothers and sisters grow and, 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 and teach and admonish and do all of that. That's not the point. No, the point is that we don't separate from them. We don't stop talking to them. We don't stop trying to fellowship with them. We don't stop trying to have a relationship with them. No, instead, because of the radical power of the gospel, we reconcile with our brothers and sisters without demand for repayment without expectation to be vindicated and without a requirement for compensation. We do it simply because Jesus Christ paid for that sin already. It has been compensated. It has been vindicated. It has been repaid. And to say that we need more than Jesus Christ's sacrifice... It's extraordinarily arrogant. 
We reconcile even with those who have committed great offense against us because we agree with God. We agree that if Jesus' sacrifice was enough for God to forgive them, then it certainly is enough for us to forgive them also. I'm telling you, this book is short, but it's short like a dagger, isn't it? And maybe you might be asking, I, I, I don't, how do I do this? Let me give you a few ideas. The first and easiest would be simply to use your words and speak to them. I know that sounds intimidating, but try it. Even if you have to go up to them and say something like, Grant said I have to talk to you. If that's out of the question, if you just can't find the guts to go and do that, it's understandable. Why not write it out? Send them a letter. Sometimes it's easier to say things when you're not looking someone in the eyes. Put it under your pillow, sleep on it for a day or two, make sure it's not something dumb. Send it to them in writing. If that doesn't work, if you still can't do that, then do what Onesimus did. Find a mediator. Find someone here in the building. I'd be more than willing to do it, to go in between and help broach the subject. Because, listen, this is what I want you to understand. In my experience, as limited as it is, I can just about promise you, as offended or insulted or hurt you feel, there is a very strong chance that the people you're going to approach are not even going to realize they had insulted you. And they're going to be very sorry that that, that happened. They're going to be shocked. You'll find out it was, it was a big accident, a misunderstanding. Most of the time, that's what's going to happen. Not all the time. Most of the time. It won't be as big a deal as you think it is. But Pastor Grant, I, I still don't think I can do that. I mean, like, maybe I could do it on the outside, but my heart, it just ain't there. What should I do? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Spend every moment you can meditating on the radical power of the gospel that reconciled you with God. Immerse yourself in that. Let the Word of God go to work on your heart by memorizing verses. For example, like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Where he told us, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the word to himself through Christ, not counting their sins against them, not counting our trespasses against us, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What's that message? For our sake... He made him to become sin who had no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Write that on your heart. Remember it. Or, or what about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16? For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in order and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two by making peace. Why? 
He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The hostility between you and other people has been, past tense, killed by the flesh of Christ. Or what we read this morning in Romans chapter 5. Write this one on your heart. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. They might even die for a good person. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we deserved to be forgiven less than whoever has insulted us, at that point in time, Christ said, put it on my tab. Brothers and sisters, let that gospel invade and saturate your heart. Let that gospel take up residence in your heart and your mind. Let it move some furniture around. Because it is in the beauty and the power and the majesty of Jesus Christ, in that gospel, that you will find the power of the gospel to change your heart again and again and again and again. It is in the radical power of the gospel to reconcile you to God where you will find the radical power of the gospel to reconcile us with others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a gift you have given us in your Son. Father, if anything this morning, I pray that you would give us a deeper, better, more rounded understanding of what you actually did for us, what you accomplished for us, the depth and the width of the chasm that lie between you and us. Father, I pray that you would do that so that the chasm that might lie between us and another brother or sister would seem infinitesimal comparatively. That if you could bridge the gap between you and us with Jesus, Jesus Christ, then it is nothing for, for you to bridge the gap between us and a brother or sister with him as well. Father, show us the immense power that your gospel has, the good news that because you have reconciled us to yourself, we can also be reconciled to each other. Father, I pray that you do this so that we could experience the joy and the peace and the harmony and the unity and the love that you have, have described in your word. That we wouldn't miss out on your blessings because of our own injury or insult, but that we would trust and believe in Jesus Christ the power of your gospel for our lives to be lived abundantly. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.